you would please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and we are coming today to the third of three parables that Jesus gives here. We considered the first two last week, which might in one sense be regarded as one because of the clear parallels that are between the two. Last week we considered the the parable of the lost sheep along with the parable of the lost coin. And remember the background of this, that Jesus is telling these parables in response to the grumbling that takes takes place in verse 2 of chapter 15 because of the company that is gathering around Jesus, gathering in His presence. And again, remembering back even further as we look to the last portion of chapter 14, where Jesus issued the call to discipleship, and this is what it means. This is what it cost to follow after me, that likely there was a great thinning of the crowd, but with that thinning, evidently there were those of this type, these sinners, these tax collectors who remained there in the presence of Jesus. And so the Pharisees and the lawyers seeing this, Their determination is that, well, Jesus cannot be a holy man and encourage such associations, associations with people as had gathered in his presence. And so Jesus gives, I think, an unexpected portrayal of God regarding sinful men. As we looked at last week of the lost sheep and the lost coin there we we saw Jesus as he gave us this picture of God is he is more than just one who receives sinners into his presence he is one whose Jesus himself presents him as one who goes pursuing after sinners so in the minds of the Pharisees the picture that Jesus gives is much worse than they had thought he's going after them this is the kind of, of people that he will pursue. And of course the intent, the hope, the desire is that these these come in repentance. And so again, we're picking up on the third parable in this trilogy of parables. And we're not going to look at this parable in its entirety. We're going to read through verse 24, dealing with the, the younger son, the prodigal son, the son that is the wasteful, extravagant Son, and we will consider, Lord willing, next week Doug will be preaching here for us, and I'll resume with verse 25 regarding the older son and two weeks from today. So begin reading with me here in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. <clears throat> and he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to, his, to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, 
quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. There were two emphases that we saw in the previous section of chapter 15. One was God's joy and delight that he demonstrates in the presence of those who of his angels when one repents. And we, we saw that in verse 7 where there he says, I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then again in verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So one emphasis is obviously the the joy, the delight of God in one's repentance. And closely accompanying that would be the issue of repentance Itself, Another emphasis of the first section, the first two parables that we considered last week. And it's with these two emphases in mind, the emphasis of God's joy and delight over repentance, but also the emphasis of repentance itself that we want to consider our text today. Because this is what Jesus emphasizes as he is telling these parables. Emphasizing the joy of God, God's joy and when an individual repents and God's pursuing after sinners. And so, since this is what Jesus does emphasize, we must give consideration to these things. And so, as I looked at this text today, I realized, first of all, it's a text that we're all very familiar with. And so there is some measure of difficulty in preaching a text of such familiarity to all of us. And even a text that I'm so familiar with, how do I look at it in a new way, a refreshing way? I'm not looking for new and hidden truths necessarily, but in a way that is refreshing to my heart, to our hearts, and I trust edifying and encouraging to us. And so With that in mind, the variety of approaches that one can take to this text, I've chosen to focus our emphasis this morning on the matter, on the issue of repentance. And if you see the insert in your bulletin, the sermon notes there, you see that's what I have emphasized in the outline, this issue of repentance. What do we need to consider here in light of our text? Well, first of all, we see here the rationale or the reason for repentance. Is something as drastic as repentance, as is articulated and portrayed to us in the Scriptures, once we understand what repentance truly is, that it is a turning away from ourselves or turning away from our lives and in turning a new direction toward toward Christ and toward God, is it really so important, something that drastic? Is it necessary that one should repent? Is it necessary that everyone, everyone who comes to God must come in repentance? After all, are there not varying degrees of men, varying degrees of sin, varying degrees of men who have given themselves and have been given over to sin? Is it necessary that we all come in the playing field, be so level out, and that all must come to God in repentance? That's answered in one sense by Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 well, here we, we considered a few weeks ago, weeks ago when those came to Jesus reporting about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed. And Jesus says in verse 3, I tell you, unless you, you plural, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And again in verse 5, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, 
you will all likewise perish. So that's answered to some degree there. That there is the necessity, there is the appropriateness for anyone who would come to God to be reconciled to God. He must come in a spirit of repentance. But are all people really that bad? And so to illustrate the rationale for repentance, Jesus places before his hearers and for us as readers here, this younger son of this man who has two sons. Now, as we think about this younger son, always the first question generally that comes to mind, who is this younger son illustrating? Who is it supposed to be portraying to us? And I think it's proper For us to know that for us to understand who this prodigal son represents, it is not necessary to make a spiritual parallel to every detail of the story. There would be some spiritual parallels to some of the details, but not a spiritual parallel to be necessarily drawn from every detail of this story. So that when we are presented here at this story and he's presented as a son of this father. It's not necessary and I do not even think it's correct. To insist then that this younger son is representative of a people of God or individuals of God who wander away from God and fall into sin. In other words, that this would be a picture in our terminology of a believer who wanders from his relationship from God the Father, falls into sin, and is restored. I think the appropriate parallel is rather this. It's a portrayal of any member of the human race who is living in rebellion against and alienation from God. And the imagery that Jesus gives here of sonship is not so that we will draw the parallel, well, this is someone who is a, quote, child of God. The imagery of sonship is used because it forces those who are hearing Jesus speak and those of us who are now reading of this, it forces us to see the horrendous nature of the offenses of the son against his father, hence the nature, the horrendous nature of the offenses of mankind against God. So if we want to get a clear picture of just how offensive our sin is against God as a part of the human race, Jesus says, think about it in terms of sonship. Think about it in terms of a son who has all of the benefits, all the blessings, all the good things from his father who ought to have displayed a measure of gratitude. He ought to have displayed respect and reverence for his father. And he doesn't. So think of your relationship. Think of, the, of mankind's relationship with God with that picture in mind. This son who comes expecting his father to grant his demand for his portion of the inheritance now. A son who is unappreciative at best, despising his father at worst. A son that who has determined that his father's greatest value to him is by his dying because he comes requesting that which would be his once his father passes. And he takes the wealth that his father and the compassionate love gives. And he hits the road. Going to a distant distant country, verse 13 See, as Jesus sharing this parable in the context of those who are listening, 
in his day the anticipated response of a son making such a request of his father would have been that the father would arise in anger and that he would say to that son, you go from here with nothing. That's the response that the Pharisees, that the lawyers, anyone here in this parable in Jesus' day would have expected. And so this father here on the first time makes the unexpected response. He does not arise in anger. Rather, he chooses to honor this request of his youngest son and he gives it to him. Gives him the inheritance. And what a vivid portrayal of man this is, isn't it? Of man in his natural and unconverted state. Because do not all men receive multiplied benefits and blessings and kindnesses from God. It rains upon the just and the unjust. God causes His sun to shine upon the righteous and the unrighteous. And men take these good gifts of God with no expression of gratitude. Romans 1 tells us that men were unthankful. No expression of gratitude. No sense of dependence upon God's kindness and His good graces. As though man has a right not only to this, but to much more. And how quickly men begin to complain when they do not get these things. Or the situations of life turn against them. That's the way man lives in relation to God. With their back turned toward God, looking for satisfaction, looking for pleasure in God's world with the resources that God has given because of His kindness. And so the parallel that we can draw here even from the context of the previous parables is this. It's a picture of a man who is lost. Like a sheep. Like a coin. Except it's more critical than a sheep. You don't get the full picture with the sheep. It's more crucial than a coin. You don't get the full picture with the coin. You get here with humanity, with the picture of a man and his two sons. Here is a picture of the lostness of man. How lost are men in their sin? And Jesus says, you can imagine it like this. It's like a son who goes to his father and would reap and call for every benefit that he could receive as though he had a right to it. And then will go and will use it for his own self, for his own pleasures, his own desires. No thought of his father. And men live with no thought of God. No thought of their lostness apart from him. What man in his right mind would not be compelled to think apart from God, I'm nothing. But we think of man who has fallen and he sees himself with no sense of indebtedness to God. And in fact, if anything, he believes that he can do something that God might be indebted to him. So this portrayal here that Jesus gives of this son, this youngest son, is a portrayal of the rationale for repentance. Here's the reason. Here's the rationale that something as drastic as repentance is necessary in the heart of man. It's because his sin is so wicked. It's so glaring. It is so evil. And it is so all-consuming in the essence of his being. In other words, the rationale for repentance is man's utter depravity. His utter fallenness. From God and His sin. And when men see the absolute wickedness of their sin as an affront against God, just as what this son did was an affront and an offense against his father, then we've begun to see, to some degree, the rationale 
for repentance. The rightness that such a demand be made, that such a demand be necessary. Men must repent. And so to those who see their sin as such, repentance is very reasonable. In fact, if anything, it seems almost inadequate. Surely there must be more. Not only a repentance, not only a turning away, but I mean, I've got to do some type of, of restitution. I've got to try to do some good to counter the evil. And you can't do it. There's no good that we can do and, and bring to God. No good that we can do and balance out the evil. No good that we can do and undo the evil that we've done. All we can do is repent. Let me ask you, is this your concept of sin? Let me ask you, is this your concept of your sin? Your sin. Do you see the need for you to repent? Have you come to a place in your life where you recognize that you need to do something drastic? Rather than just turn over a new leaf and try a new direction, but to have my heart and life completely turned around. To see yourself as... The prophet Isaiah, as I referenced earlier in my prayer, as he saw himself when he saw the, the holiness and the majesty of God, and he falls on his face for God, and he says, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Quite a confession for a man whose work is using his lips as a prophet of God. Everything that I would say is polluted with sin. I cannot repent enough. And actually, when Jesus presents this picture of, of sin, the Pharisees would have agreed said, man, that's a good picture of what sin against God is like. It's like a rebellious and a defiant son who has no sense of gratitude, no sense of indebtedness, no sense of love for his father. And that's mankind. But the problem with the, that the Pharisees and the lawyers would was that they would say, I know somebody like that. But it's not me. So the rationale for repentance here that Jesus gives is you need to picture our offenses in the position of mankind and what he's what he has done, what we have done in our sin against God. You put it in the in the perspective here as Jesus does. He illustrates it with this this son, this foolish son and the sin against his father he says you're starting to get a good picture of what your relationship to God in and of yourself is like. That's the rationale for repentance. It is the depravity of the human heart. Second, we see the regard for repentance. The regard for repentance. We're not going to spend a lot of time on a lot of the details here of what this son does. It's certainly what we could spend easily. More time, more sermons. But I've chosen to take the larger picture here. And we see here the regard for repentance. What's happened here? The son, he's, he's taken the money. He's taken the, his portion of the estate. And, and we don't know how he did it, but either it was liquidated so he had the cash or he sold it himself and he got the cash. But whatever he did, he had money and he went. He lived in a, a land that was far enough to be away from the influence and the vision of his father and of his family and of the and the village, the, the people, the community in which he lived. 
and he wasted. Just living, King James, I said, riotous, uh, riotous living. Here, the NASB, it says he squandered his estate with loose living. But just, he lived extravagantly. He was living above his means and just, you know, spending money left and right, hand over fist, as quick as it could go. He was, he would use for it. You know, we know what that's like, don't you? You never any short of have any problem spending money. A little bit extra cash comes in. Man, I, I've got something to do with it. <laughs> this money wasn't in our budget. So what? It's gone. <laughs> and so this man, this young boy, or man, he was living extravagantly and he squandered all that was his. And while he's there in this distant land, Famine comes. And so because of the famine, a severe famine takes place. And it says in verse 14, the story that Jesus tells, he began to be impoverished. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country. So evidently, he didn't have a lot of skill. This was the only job he could find. He went and found his, a job feeding the swine. Now there's a, a beautiful picture for a Jewish audience, isn't it? Here is the lowest of low. This is as far down as you can go on the totem pole. And he's going to this far country among the Gentiles, most likely. And here he is feeding their pigs. And he would find satisfaction, verse 16, just to eat the pig's food. But he can't even find anyone that will give him that. Now, don't you eat that. That's for my pigs. It's kind of the imagery that's, that's drawn there. And then verse 17 is kind of the transition, the turning point, the beginning at least here of the turning point. King James says, I think it says that uh, he came to himself. Is that what it says? I think King James. In verse 17 it says here in the NASB, he came to his senses. He just started thinking about his plot. He had hired himself out, and again, evidently didn't have much in the way of skills. So the only job he could find was slopping the pigs. So he hired himself out, and then he started thinking about his father hired men. And those men that work for his father, they've got plenty. They're not going hungry. And so, he acknowledges that he has sinned against his father. Verse 18, he says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go get up and go to my father. And I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Now, let's make sure we understand one thing here. That would have been the expected minimal response. To come back and to say to your father, and he knew that. I just can't go walking back in and say, Hi, Dad, I'm home. But there was to be a confession of sin here. So I don't think that we necessarily have to conclude that when he comes to his senses in verse 17, that he's truly been brought to the end of himself. In fact, uh, let me commend a, a work to you by a man named Kenneth Bailey. It's... Uh, Finding the Lost, Cultural Keys to Luke 15. And this is a massive work on this chapter and has some other things as well. But uh, he makes a very strong case that what we see here is in verse 17 that this son, he's not come to the end of himself yet. He's thought, hey, I can still do something. But, and saying that he's going to go to his father and be in a hired hand, he is saying this. He is, his plan is to go to his father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired hand, hired men. In other words, train me with a skill. You develop me so that I'll have a skill so that I can fend for myself. So, he does acknowledge his sin. His unfitness as a son, and that would certainly be appropriate. Hire me because, if nothing else, I know your care for your hired men. And I won't be slopping pigs, and I won't be going hungry. That's the speech he's prepared as he thinks about returning home. 
So there is a betrayal to some degree of repentance here, verses 17 through 20. But then we see an important, an important act here in verse 20. He got up and he came. You know, it's beyond reasoning through what to be a good scheme, what to be a good plan. It's a young man who says, it says here, he got up. And he came. And he came to his father. So now we see in this point of this parable that rather than the son who has wandered, we see the father becoming the central figure of this parable. It says here that this father saw him in verse 20. Or verse 20. Yeah, verse 20. The father saw him. While he was still a long way off. Let me read to you some words here from Bailey here on this. Because I think sometimes we may, you know, we, we, we see in pictures, we think in pictures. And we can imagine what this might have looked like. And, you know, sometimes, we, well, this is obviously a wealthy man. He's probably got his, his big spread, you know, like the Ponderosa on Bonanza. You know, they got their thousands of acres out there. He's got his big spread. And here comes the sun wandering in. And that's not the picture at all. Although he was a wealthy man, it was just understood. In, in this day, everyone lived in a village for safety, if nothing else. You didn't have your little house on the prairie. You know, you lived in the safety of a community. Listen to what uh, uh, Bailey says about this. The father sees him at a great distance. He says, the picture is not that of a father looking out through the windows of a pillared mansion on the top of a hill who just happens to look up and see the approach of the long lost boy. Rather, we have the picture of a home in the middle of a traditional village facing on a narrow street. The father, for months or years, has been watching the distant road as it approaches the town gate and becomes a village street. He knows his son well, and he knows that he will fail. He also knows that the boy is arrogant and will not return until all is lost. Thus, he will appear in rags and will be badly treated by the village. So the father has a plan. He is determined to reach the boy before the boy reaches the village. He alone can protect the boy from the hostility of the town. So from some vantage point, the father watches the road. He must see him at a great distance to give time to reach him and carry out his plan. And so we have here the picture of a father who is looking with compassion and knowing that that son appears and I don't see him first. He's going to go through the gauntlet of the village. And so he is looking out, watching, hoping. And then he sees him in verse 20. He sees him while he's still a long way off and he felt compassion for him and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. So again, the assumption here of Jesus here is that you have this village and this community setting. And the son is seen by the father who runs before the son can enter into the village. And it's interesting here too what Bailey says about the father and his and his running. Make sure I get the right place here. It says the reluctance on the Arabic versions, Arabic versions of this text, to let the father run is amazing. There are three Syriac translations that record the running of the father, but not in the Arabic. These translations render he went or presented himself or hastened or hurried. For a thousand years, a wide range of such phrases were employed, almost as if there was a conspiracy to avoid the humiliating truth of the text. The father ran. 
The explanation for all of this is simple. The tradition identified the Father with God and running in public is too humiliating to attribute to a person who symbolizes God. Not until 1860, Van Dyke Arabic Bible, does the Father appear running. And the worksheets of the translators are available to me. And even in that great version, the first rendition of the Greek was, He hurried. And only in the second round of the translation process does He ran, appeared. The Hebrew of Proverbs 19.2 reads, He that hastens with his feet sins. The Father represents God. How could He run? He does. So this Father who lays aside all dignity for the sake of receiving His Son who has shamed Him. So what we have here is a Father who is willing to even look the part of of a fool. Doing this. For this son. And I don't think that we could consider that. Without, without making the parallels. Of the costly love. Demonstrated for sinners. In the humiliation. And the sufferings of our Savior Jesus Christ. And if you might pardon the expression, but I say it with all due reverence, that Jesus Christ came looking the fool for the sake of us. He did that for us. So Jesus' portrayal of God's joy and His regard for repentance. Jesus describes it as like the joy of a father who loves his wayward son who is looking for him and he goes running in an undignified manner to welcome him and to receive him. That's the picture that Jesus draws of God receiving sinners. He's undignified. It's shameful. This is a a portrayal, a portrayal that we would abhor as irreverent if it were coming from the lips of anyone other than Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you? You know, we have the, the phenomena of Christian contemporary music and you know, it's all around us. And sometimes I kind of recoil at what I hear being expressed in song that's supposed to be talking about or portraying God or Jesus. I don't like the song when God ran. <laughs> I don't like that song because I don't like the image that it that it conveys, but you know what? And I'm not endorsing such things, incidentally. But you know what? It is an image that Jesus used here. And it's an image that as the people of God, we would absolutely recoil from it. If it were from anyone else. And rightly so, I suppose, if it were from anyone else. <laughs> but since this is Jesus speaking, He can portray Himself as He wills, can't He? And so Jesus uses the very surprising picture here. Another surprising response of this Father. The expected response would be that the Father looks out, He sees His Son coming, and He stands there, perhaps with His arms across His chest, waiting. And when this Son gets into His presence, the expectation would be that this Son would fall at the feet of His Father, kiss His Father's feet. That's what would have been expected. 
And Jesus says, here's the way you need to picture God's God's regard for repentance. God goes after and He spares. He spares and He receives and He embraces sinners who repent. Why such joy on the heart of this Father? And He gives the answer. Verse 24. Why such joy? Because as far as this father was concerned, this son of mine, he was dead. And he's come to life. And he was lost. And he has been found. And they began to celebrate. What a party! What a joy. What a picture that Jesus is giving here of the joy of His Father toward those who repent. It's as pictured as a father who has had a son who has returned from the dead. As a son who was lost and he's found. Jesus says, picture the joy, picture God's regard for repentance like this. Get this image of, of God in your mind. Get an image of God running and welcoming the sinner. It's not an image that they would have imagined. It's not one that we would either. And it's not one we want to keep in our minds very often. But that's the picture He gives. What a truth in which we can rejoice. God receives repentant sinners. Doesn't He? Welcomes them. It's not God standing aloof, arms crossed, convince me of your sincerity. It's God who is in fact pursued and as we come, He welcomes. He welcomes repentant Centers. There's no listing here of the offenses of this son, is there? The father doesn't say, listen, the reports have been coming back. I know what you've been doing. Nor does he ask, well, what have you been doing? All he has to do is a little, little more than look at him. He knows. He looks at the clothes on his back, the robe if that he has, and he knows what he's been doing. Looks at his appearance. He knows. More importantly, the Son knows. And so the Son comes to the Father. The Father embraces Him. The Son begins His little speech, His little prepared speech. And the Father just won't even let Him get it finished, will He? I think perhaps there. That was when the Son realized, I don't have anything to offer. And isn't that true? Isn't that true of grace? That it's when we finally fall into the loving forgiving arms of God that we realize I've brought much less than a thought. I've nothing. God willing to let His Son die. The foolishness of God to redeem the lost so that we don't come to God with promises. We don't come to God with the Lord, I'll do this, 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 if you'll do this. We come to God in brokenness. We come to God in repentance. Then there is the reward or the result for repentance. And I use the word reward there loosely. I think we understand any reward for repentance. If we understand that repentance is a grace of God, that God is simply rewarding us for His work within us. Isn't that a marvelous work of grace? How is this Son received? Again, His prepared plan has been ignored. Look what the Father does in this story. Verse 22, The Father said to His slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put on Him. Do you have any guess as to what that best robe would be? Can we imagine it being any other robe in the house other than 
His own. In fact, some have translated it. You bring Him my best robe. The ring. Family ring, symbol of authority, of acceptance, representative of the family. The sandals on His feet. Dignity. Only slaves went barefoot. Bring some sandals for my son. So what we have here is everything that would have identified this man, this son, as having fallen from his place within the family has been removed. And then the fatted calf. Fatted calf was reserved for the most important of celebrations, and the estimate is that a fatted calf, when slaughtered, was was to feed a, a group to be a party of 200. This is going to be a big party. And the community in which this son has, has left, and shame the community as well, They're expected to come not in honor of the Son, but in honor of the Father. The Father has restored His Son. We will come to His party, to His celebration in honor of the Father. And isn't that a picture of God's grace to us? Every trace of that which identified us as being alienated and separated from God has been removed. That, you know, the parallel obviously drawn, the, the robe, we have the robes of righteousness of Christ. So that none would, and particularly God Himself, looks upon us and there is nothing there's nothing when God looks upon us in the merits of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us that would anywise identify us in our sin and in our alienation and separation from God. It's been removed. There's been a great exchange. There's been the removal of the, the old and the filthy and the dirty rags and they've been placed upon Christ and His merits, His righteousness given to us. No trace, no trace of anything that alienated us, that separated us from God. We look like family in God's sight. We have the appearance of children of God in His sight. Because He's removed everything that would identify us as being fallen. Justified, declared righteous, called the sons of God. It's a marvelous truth, is it not? God's reward, His return for His work of grace. For His work of repentance in our hearts. Him granting us repentance. His gift to us, and He gives us the reward for it. That's grace. So that we rest not in the fitness of our repentance. Did I repent enough? Was my repentance sincere? Was, did it cover all the bases? No, but we rest in the sufficient work of Jesus Christ that God has removed my sin from me and laid it upon His Son. The Lord has laid upon Him the iniquities of us all and that God has taken the righteousness of Christ and imputed it, applied it to me. God has done that. God is our Father. We are His children. The title of the message this morning is One Who Repents. This son is one who repents, and we see the rationale for it. Repentance is very reasonable if you see yourself as God sees you. 
that you see yourself as you really are. But we also receive God's regard for repentance. Portrayed in this Father who humiliates Himself and looks the fool out of love for His for this Son, this repentant Son. And then we see the reward of what God gives us in Christ. Have you repented? We've talked a lot about repentance in here in recent weeks, haven't we? But you just can't get away from it. Have you repented? Father, we give thanks to You that You reveal to us in such vivid imagery what we would never dare to imagine ourselves. But what a comfort to us to know that when we come, you gladly receive us. And what an assurance it is to our hearts today because of the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God and His attitude toward those who repent. Lord, apply what you will to each of our hearts today as is appropriate. You know every heart here. No doubt, some here who have not yet repented. And if you'd be pleased to grant that grace, oh, to let them see the reception that awaits them because of your mercy. Not because we are a great reward for you, but because you are a dispenser of great rewards on us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.